This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the Army doubles down on one of its newest force constructs and hyping the future of hypersonics. It's Wednesday, September 28th, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Army's newest force construct is up and running in the Pacific, and DOD will take a bulk buy approach to hypersonics. John Harper's managing editor of Defense Scoop, Mark Pomerlow, is a reporter for Defense Scoop. Mark, uh, talk to you. Mark, I go to you first. What is an MDTF, multi domain task force, and what does it comprise? Welcome. Sure. Thanks, Francis. Uh, the Army's multi-domain task force uh, is essentially an organization that is meant to be kind of always competing with the adversary, right? We've heard this, this phrase of uh, persistent engagement throughout the last few years. And um, as adversaries have been more active in kind of this so-called gray zone, this competition phase, you know, this, this threshold below armed conflict, the, the U.S. military has sought ways to uh, meet it in this in this um, uh, shore of our armed conflict area, and so uh, one answer from the army are the, is this multi-domain task force, which um, is going to be forward located and is going to essentially be meeting the adversary here. Uh, it'll comprise of a, a variety of different capabilities to include uh, long-range precision fires as well as sensing capabilities to kind of tip and cue. Um, traditional forces, uh, both within the Army and within the Joint Force, um, to help them better understand what the adversary is doing and even help uh, potentially uh, relay targets to these other other assets. Um, It's kind of going to be this um, persistent, always looking eye at the adversary. Um, The Army uh, on Friday just activated its third such multi-domain task force, Um, and this is actually the second uh, multi-domain task force that will be uh, Pacific-focused. You uh, write, the first MDTF has been equipped with the Electronic Warfare Planning and Management Tool. What's that capability, and what's the significance of of it being located with that MDTF? Sure. So uh, the Electronic Warfare Planning and Management Tool, or uh, EWPMT, is essentially uh, uh, what, it, what it says. It's a planning and management tool. It, you know, the electromagnetic spectrum is this kind of uh, invisible, ever-present area that, that's always around us, but it's difficult to actually visualize because we can't see it. So what this tool does is it uh, ingests information from sensors on the battlefield and actually provides commanders with a picture of this uh, invisible battle space. It allows them to see essentially where um, adversary uh, uh, capabilities are, and it allows them to see where friendly capabilities are and can actually even plot uh, courses of action and and tell commanders, you know, if you want to maneuver your forces here, here's your risk from a jamming and electromagnetic spectrum perspective. So, uh, by the MDTF uh, having this capability, it allows them to have a better picture and a better view of the electromagnetic spectrum there and be able to better command and control and plan operations within this uh, highly important but uh, invisible battlefield. What else, if anything, do we know about technologies that the first MDTF has and that the third one that will be located in proximity to the first one may or or may not have that's uh, different than what the first one does? 
Sure. So in, in terms of the third MDTF, uh, officials told reporters that it's basically going to be the same as as the, the first. Um, they, they were kind of hard pressed to provide uh, members of, of the press with any key distinctions. Um, they, they essentially noted that it will be largely the same. Uh, in terms of additional capabilities, um, they'll have some defensive cyber capabilities. They'll have some uh, um, to, to do networking uh, um, configurations and, and defensive cyber uh, operations. Uh, they'll also likely be getting the um, MFU Air Large, the multi-functional uh, electronic warfare Air Large. It's a, uh, a jamming pod that will be um, mounted on some type of an aircraft. Uh, they'll also be getting the terrestrial layer system, echelons above brigade system once that's officially fielded. Now that's um, a ground-based uh, integrated cyber electronic warfare and signals intelligence tool um, that's still in the development phase. So um, once that's fielded, um, it'll be uh, with uh, the, the multi-domain task forces. More detail on the MDTFs is in your report that's on defensegroup.com right now. John Harper, welcome. Your conversation with Bill LaPlante, uh, primarily about hypersonics, but you touched on other issues, in my view, was the highlight of defense talks. Um, what's your takeaway from that conversation, and why is hypersonics so important? We'll hear the details in that conversation later in this program, but why is hypersonics in such focus for the department right now, John? Welcome. Thanks, Francis. Well, it's uh, certainly a top R&D priority, uh, but the DOD is hoping in the next few years to actually transition these systems into production. And, uh, you know, hypersonic weapons are, you know, unique in that, um, you know, the combination of their speed and maneuverability, they're expected to fly faster than Mach 5, uh, be highly maneuverable against enemy air defenses and be able to uh, attack time sensitive or high value targets. And so, you know, as the U.S. Uh, tries to keep pace with China, which is developing its own hypersonic weapons, Russia is as well. Uh, they're hoping to actually start fielding these things soon. Um, and there was a recent development just a few days ago. The uh, Air Force awarded Raytheon uh, nearly a one billion dollar contract. Uh, for the hypersonic attack cruise missile, uh, for them to develop that. Um, and that's a uh, scramjet powered system uh, as opposed to a boost glide system, uh, which uh, DOD is also pursuing a number of boost glide systems. Um, but uh, officials and uh, industry folks uh, believe that the scramjet systems might be less expensive and be able uh, to be produced more quickly than the boost glide systems. Uh, they're expected to be smaller, uh, maybe not have to travel as fast uh, or as uh, uh, long uh, ranges as the boost glide systems. Uh, so there's some optimism there. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. The Air Force is hoping to have uh, the Hackham uh, ready by 2027. Um, so, uh, you know, it may come a little bit later than some of the boost glide systems, but it may also offer some benefits just in terms of the uh, scale at which they can be uh, procured and uh, fielded. One of your questions that we'll hear in a moment to uh, Secretary LaPlante regards the cost and the connection to scale there. What's the relativity? What's the context for what the potential 
uh, Hack M costs compared to some of the missiles that are in the arsenal now? Well, uh, LaPlante mentioned, you know, that the uh, DoD hyperscience community is kind of aiming for, you know, five to $10 million uh, all up around hypersonic weapons. Um, and he noted that it will depend on, you know, whether you're talking about a, a cruise missile or a boost glide system. Um, so, you know, the cruise missile that could come in at a lower cost, they haven't uh, provided, you know, uh, it, what exactly the cost differential might be for those systems. But if, uh, you know, weapon systems are less expensive then you know, with any given amount of money, DOD can buy more of them. So that's really, you know, the issue of scale. If they want to field these things in large numbers, you know, they want them to be, uh, you know, as cost effective as possible. Uh, so, you know, what the ultimate price tag of these things uh, turns out to be will definitely shape, uh, you know, the uh, budget planning and uh, the number of systems that DOD can ultimately procure. Uh, kudos to you, not just you, but to also Mark and Brandy Vincent, our Defense Scoop colleague, on a terrific uh, debut of the publication and the Defense Talks program. Um, now that that is in the rearview mirror, what's in front of you, John, in the week ahead? Well, the uh, Capital Factory down in Austin is hoping is uh, hosting a uh, innovation forum, and uh, there are going to be some program managers from the Army Software Factory talking about their software modernization efforts. It's a really interesting uh, pilot initiative where uh, Army soldiers are going through there, learning about coding and honing their skills uh, to try to create some organic uh, software capability for the army. So I'm certainly uh, looking forward to hearing more about that. Mark, what's on your agenda in the week ahead? So I'll uh, be headed up to uh, Aberdeen Proving Ground later this week to get uh, an update on some of the army's network uh, modernization efforts, uh, as as I think I've talked about previously on the program there, uh, still in the throes of this uh, iterative capability set model where they're fielding um, incremental sets of, of uh, new systems to soldiers on a, on a two-year iterative basis. So excited to hear where, where they're You can read more about these stories and lots more at defensescoop.com. The Defense Innovation Unit has a notice on the street for commercial technology for a hypersonic test vehicle. Bill LaPlante, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment at Defense Talks, he tells Defense Scoop's John Harper the news on hypersonics is good. We're closer than we've ever been to getting into production for hypersonics, maybe within a year to year and a half, if I remember right. And to, as I have mentioned before, that's remarkable. Hypersonics has been the weapon of the future for 60 years, as they always say, and has been an S&T for 60 years, at least in this country. So that'll be a huge, uh, huge milestone. We are... I will just say right now, the budgeting process is, is going on for the, I guess it's Palm 24, they call it. But absolutely, there is going to, there is a wedge in the budget to do hypersonics and do it with production. Um, we, uh, we're leaving open exactly the specific path that we're going to use, but it will be funded, absolutely. And are you able to just give us kind of a ballpark number? You know, are you looking at procuring, you know, couple dozen of these or hundreds of these over the fit-up? Well, so before I answer that question, just remind people there's two classes of hypersonics that typically talk about the powered flight. Think of it as a cruise missile. And then there's the the glide vehicles where usually a ballistic booster 
then you have a, a glide uh, vehicle that can go not just downrange but crossrange. So it depends on which of those two you're talking about. Um, what, we're what the hypersonics community is trying to do is, is shoot towards an all-up round cost that's reasonable. And so uh, it's not gonna, they're not going to be able to buy very many of them if they're $80 million and all-up round. So they're, they're, they're shooting for somewhere even, even as, as low as 10 or $5 million around. And, and that really is going to drive the numbers. And so um, I think what everybody knows is that when you, when you get the, the price per round, the all-up round down, it allows you to produce more, allows you to learn, so you get the production learning rate. Um, but it's not going to be uh, buying eight of them. It's going to be many more, many more. I don't know what we know the exact number. It's going to be driven by the price. Um, but I would say certainly many tens at the least of these. And again, it, it's, it'll be a different answer on whether it's the glide vehicle you're talking about or the cruise missile. And are you more enthusiastic about one particular type? Um, well, I'm enthusiastic that either of them is getting closer to be production. I've, you see, I've personally been always very interested in the glide vehicle because the potential of the glide vehicle to do very, very long ranges and literally maneuver around countries um, is remarkable. And I also think that, uh, I think the ranges just are different. But I mean, they're both very, very, uh, very powerful, uh, uh, particularly as defenses get better and as moving targets happen. Uh, you know, I think that the, the traditional work was done more in powered flight. Really, glide vehicles has really accelerated over the last decade or so. Great. And one topic that's been uh, a big point of discussion here today is JADC2. You know, obviously, all of the services are involved with that. Um, you know, how do you view uh, you know OSD's approach to try to make sure the services are you know working together on this? A few months ago, uh, Asalt, head of Asalt, Doug Bush, had sort of floated the idea of maybe some sort of either joint program office or something along the lines of the joint uh, counter small UAS office. Do you see a need for that type of organization to pull the services together or not really? Yeah, well, I would just say this. I don't want to get ahead of the leadership that's looking at different uh, options here. I'm actually much more interested in the what than the who. You do have to have somebody uh, in charge, if you will, that actually has the equivalent of a uh, system of systems engineering and architectural view of the problem that can work with the services and fill in the pieces. There's several places that could be done, and they'll, we'll figure out who, how that's done, and I don't want to get ahead of leadership. What's much more interesting to me, and I think what people need to focus on, is the what. So what I see as the what is very, very powerful, and we need it, but it's also going to be really hard. What we're talking about, we've talked about this in different words for 15, 20 years. Uh, it used to be called multi-domain command and control. Before that, there was, I think it was even called kinetic, non-kinetic, C2. Um, this is, and, and it's, it, the concept is very powerful, which is in integrated fires, including kinetic, non-kinetic, cyber, EW, even space, um, with command and control together. Wouldn't that be great? Which, which continues, which would go all the way potentially to the weapon. And my opinion, I think a lot of people's opinion, that's really going to be our ace in the hole uh, in an Indo-PACOM scenario. So we have incredible weapons and platforms, and we're getting more of them, like we just mentioned. But the netting them together and doing combined ops, doing what's called engage on remote or even launch on remote, and is really, really powerful. So to me, that's the interesting part of the problem. And with there, what we got to deal with is 
uh, the data links themselves, and we have to, we, ideally we want to make use of the existing data links as much as we can. We have to deal with the resiliency. I think there's a lot we can learn from what the, the cellular community has done, like on a backplane, let's say for 5G, because we want to be able to be resilient. And, um, and then the other piece of it is going to be um, making sure quality of service, latency, and all those are done right. And that people can plug and plug in and plug off of it, and that it's interoperable with the allies and partners. What I just said is a grand dream, right? It's a grand dream. Um, but that's what we need to do. And it's kind of the problem of our time. And so uh, I can't think of anything more important than to build that. And, uh, and, and the how and the who and the governance structure sort of is being figured out. But, uh, but I would say the what is really what's much more important. And from an acquisition perspective, you know, when you're buying new technology, you know, Will you need, or will DOD need to write JADC2 into requirements, into contracts, to make sure that these new technologies do plug into that JADC2 architecture? Well, just separate the two for a second. Uh, we, what, what sometimes we call the three-legged stool often gets confused when we talk. And, um, and you called me an acquisition expert at the beginning. I am not. I don't consider my, I'm an engineer and a physicist, but I had to learn acquisition under protest. But uh, I would say that... Uh, that the, the way to think about it is you have three legs of the stool that all have to work together. You have the requirements process, which is largely done through the services and the, and the joint staff. That's really important to get that right. And they have done that on JADC2. They've really done a lot of good work on requirements. You have the, the budgeting, the programming, if you want to call it that. That's the third leg. That's what you're talking about with hypersonics, putting it in the palm. And then the third leg is acquisition, where you actually have to put the act strategy together and do the contracting. You need those three really well coordinated. Um, I would say on all those three, requirements are probably the furthest along, um, and budgeting and act strategy is coming now. And so you'll get, once you get all three, um, I think it'll be very coherent, and, and that's what I look for. What I look for is all three legs of that stool being, being solid and being agile, because you want to be able to move around those three legs as, as the program develops. In many ways, if you think about agile, and, and software, and I don't want to get into the agile priesthood here, but if you call it short, uh, iterative uh, development in, in, in small incremental steps, that's, that's essentially agile. That's really working across those three legs. You get the requirements together after each sprint with the uh, acquisition. You say, what do we do next? What worked, what didn't? Then you move the money. That's where we need to go, and I think that's what's going to need to happen with JADC2. Thanks. And, um, you know, with regard to... Um you know, there's been a perennial challenge, the Valley of Death, that came up during your confirmation hearing, um, where, you know, DoD invests a lot of money uh, into R&D, um, but it doesn't actually really transition into production. Um, you know, do you foresee the need for any new initiatives to try to bridge that Valley of Death? We have a, we have a lot of initiatives on this. It's a focused effort across the services and between Heidi Shu and myself. And Heidi and I are joined at the hip to the point of where I wanted to introduce myself as Heidi Shu, but I didn't think that would go over well. But we are joined at the hip. Um, here's the thing, I, I've been thinking about this for, I'm, I'm old, so I've been thinking this for a long time. You know what I think part of the issue is? We don't, we haven't been paying, we've been paying the minimal amount on production lines for the last 25 years. So it's not that the, it, so it's actually, we go to the trouble of spending the R&D, we go to the trouble of getting a prototype, we, we do demos, I've, all, I've been there and that's a lot of fun, and then we say, are we really ready to fund production of this thing? 
and because that's where the real real commitment is. And frankly, a lot of times we don't. I'm not blaming it all on the funding, but I'm just saying you have to take take a step back and look at that bigger picture there. And to tie it to Ukraine, that's what we're seeing right now with Ukraine. That we had we had these production lines that were very low or non-existent. And I remind people, the Stinger production line was shut down in 2008. The Mark, the Mark 48 production line, heavyweight torpedo, 1996, shut down. High Mars, which is getting all the good, rightfully so, all the good press in, uh, in Ukraine, the, the launchers for the, for the Gimblers, that line for about three years was not producing any High Mars because nobody needed them. And so we tend to have a very short-term memory in the United States, and we also, it was, this is my theory, uh, became very popular about 10, 15 years ago driven by the Walmart model to drive just-in-time delivery and, so, uh, and, and drive it by your IT system. Well, the DOD took that lesson, or thought they took that lesson, so drive down inventory, because we don't, inventory is waste, and, uh, and if the, you don't have a need right now, turn the production down, line down as much as possible. And, um, and of course, what could go wrong with that model? <laughs> You know, we have a pandemic and you have a, a, a war and then, you, then everybody sees, uh, well, that's a great model when everything's working well, but then once you have a pandemic, and we're seeing this in our everyday lives, that's what they say right now, if you want to build a new house, buy the refrigerator first because that's a long lead item. You know, that's kind of the situation we're in right now. And I think part of that is what contributed to the valley of death. I was part of a team at Johns Hopkins APL that working with General Atomics in 1996, we commanded and controlled a Predator UAS from a 688-class submarine, and we flew it out to 100 miles. We had the special forces on. We showed everybody what you could do with this thing, and everybody loved it. It got on CNN, and nothing happened. Nothing happened um, because well, you'd, have to, you'd have to put a program together. You'd have to go into production. Somebody would have to say, I need 100 of those. None of that. No, who's going to do that? So this, this valley of death issue is, is really a a much more holistic way of looking at, are we serious about acquisition? I, the, the older I get, I'm an S&T guy, right? Physics degrees, engineering, CEO, Draper, all that. But I have to admit, production's what matters. I mean, if, if somebody does a hypersonics test, I'm, you know, demo, I'm interested in it. When they go into production on hypersonics, then I pay attention like with other countries, our, our peer rep. So I think that's the piece of it that we're having to relearn. And we, and we really haven't looked at this since the Cold War. I was part of a very small study. Well, I, I'm old enough that I've been on probably five to seven cyber studies for the Defense Science Board and five to seven supply chain studies. And one of them is for supply chain. We did a quick study uh, where we brought in a lot of uh, graybeards and, and wise people. They weren't just men, of course. I say graybeards, it makes it sound male. But, and we, we looked at this issue of, of industrial-based resiliency. We went back to World War II. We looked at World War II, we looked at when were those systems developed, and then when, when did they go into production. And then we looked at how they built resiliency in World War II. Then we looked every decade since then, and we all looked at each other and said, sure, we can build a resilient industrial base. All it takes is a lot of money. Because every solution you come up with means you have to pay for money. You have to have dual production lines, two, two or three vendors, suppliers, just putting one. Um, it's just something we squeezed all of that dollars out of the system, and I think, uh, I think it's, the chickens have come home to roost, and we're having to fix it right now. The good news is we're, we're beginning to fix it. We're putting uh, billions of dollars into industry on the replenishment, on the USAI packages going to Ukraine, but we're also using 
uh, Defense Production Act Title III to, uh, to boost the production rates and capabilities across the board in the U.S. industrial base. Uh, at the end of this month, I'm going to chair a meeting of my equivalents for NATO and for the contact group for Ukraine, where we're going to compare notes on production, even internationally. So I think the, that era is over, and I think that'll help with the valley of death. And just to uh, kind of follow on to that, you know, in recent years in budget requests, RDT&E has been at historic levels. Procurement has been relatively flat or comparatively flat. Do you expect, you know, as you're developing the POM and the FITUP, that that balance between the two will shift more towards procurement as, you know, you try to bring these things across the valley? Uh, my guess is it will, but let me point out something. Maybe you all know this, but for me, it, I had to learn this or relearn this. When you look at RDT&E budgets and you look at the dollar values, what you're looking at is, is RDT&E, which is six, typically 6.1 through even 6.7, if you know those terminologies. 6.1 through 6.3 is considered S&T, okay? But when you're actually doing development, no kidding, of a real program with a contract to do the production line, that's, that's serious development. And I distinguish between those two. Because people sometimes look and they see the RDT&E went up or down and they think, oh, we're investing more in S&T or in advanced technologies. No, think about the bomber right now, the B-21. There's going to be 150 B-21s. We are going into production. There's a contract already signed. It is still completely in development. But it's, a diff it's not just doing S&T. It's actually developing. The and when I say development, sometimes traditionally it's called engineering manufacturing development. So I think I would, put, I would look at those three categories because what happens is when you don't, when you shut down, the, when you don't do production, guess what? You don't do e, EMD because as, as Frank Kendall used to say, the most critical point in a program is a decision to go on EMD because most of the time we contract for not just the development part, but the first L rips in production. That's the, that, that's the point in a program where you should not, you can't go back. Well, a lot of times we don't do that. It's milestone B in traditional acquisition. But, um, so that's the thing I really want to emphasize. And, and so it, it, think of it as the pipeline. The pipeline is an EMD development or equivalent and then a production. That's the pipeline to watch. The other part of RDT&E, advanced stuff, what hypersonics has been doing for 60 years, uh, artificial intelligence, all the, all the buzzwords, that stuff is S&T. You know, that, that's not going into into hardcore development and hardcore production. Hopefully it will someday, but that's not doing that. You mentioned AI and, um, you know, the CDAO has recently stood up to try to help, uh, you know, proliferate that technology across the department. How concerned are you, at, particularly when it comes to weapon systems, that DOD might be too hesitant or move too slowly to embrace AI? I'm not concerned about that, I think, the, at all. I, I guess what I would focus people on on AI is a couple things. One, uh, the, the, the intelligence community it has made, in my opinion, much better application of AI than the DoD has yet, partially because one of the best applications for AI is what I call discovery at scale. Say I have lots of, of video, hundreds of hours of video. If I'm looking for a white pickup truck that's made by Isuzu, because that's what ISIS uses, we've shown you can train AI algorithms to go through and find that, and a human can be taken out of the loop. That's a really great application for AI. But when you look at the kill chain, because we operate in the kill chain, right, or the kill web, where we have detect, control, engage, or whatever you want to call it, the OODA loop, whatever your favorite kill chain is, that they're looking at those parts of the kill chain and saying, where's AI going to change the game 
part of humans, we're still learning that. My personal view, it's going to be in predictive maintenance. My personal view, it's going to be in planning. I mentioned earlier in JADC2 that you have to figure out quality of service. That's a real-time calculation you have to do. If anybody knows that you have to do link budgets and you have to place assets in the right place to make sure the links close, that could all be done by AI. So that's where I think we're figuring it out, is the DoD is trying to figure out the best application for it. And no, um, and, and I think that's, that's where it's going, but people are working it. But I have to think about it through the kill chain. You have to think about it. Don't, don't think about AI because it's cool or, or whatever. Think about where does it matter in the kill chain. Um, that, that's what's important. And the final point on AI is my view is the real race in AI is counter AI, counter counter AI, counter 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 AI. If you know what I'm talking about, you've all seen the video or the examples where people have shown, if I know the training data set that you used, I can turn that algorithm that, that was the white Azuzu, I can make it come up as a toaster every time. Or I can take, if it's a facial recognition, I can take a picture of you, change a few pixels on it, and make, the, make it a picture of me. It's, it's not hard to spoof AI, at least the beginnings of AI. Um, and you, you probably have all seen the examples. There's now, now at a point where people have been able to do it, I'd call them black box sense. Almost if anybody knows control theory, it's called systems identification. Where all you know is inputs and outputs, you don't even know the algorithm, you don't know the training thing, and you can spoof it. Now there's counters to that. And so what, we, what this has been called in the past is fragility of AI. But I think in the war fighting sense, what this is gonna be about is confidence. You know, in the AlphaGo, if you've read the books about AlphaGo, what was amazing about AlphaGo for people who are playing Go, which is that game the Chinese have had for hundreds and thousands of years, was it was beating the best Go players in the world, and it was doing moves that they didn't understand, and that was counterintuitive, and still beating them. Now, think about that in warfighting. The AI gives you a move that is counterintuitive. Do you trust it? Do you trust it? You're not playing AlphaGo. You know, and that, that's where it gets to fragility and robustness and confidence. Because again, it may give you a result that is counterintuitive. And in, in war fighting, that's a cultural issue for us because we, we want humans to be looking at it. So I think that's where this is all going. And do you expect DOD to make a bigger push into that counter AI capability? Oh, they set? already are. It's already going on. There's been a lot of work going on. It's going on in the background. Um, it's, it's something that people don't talk about very much because it you know, takes the glean out of the eye of the AI zealots. Because they, you know, but, and it's not saying AI is bad, but it just says, hey, hey, you've seen it, you know, put a, it's literally put a sticker on a stop sign, and the, and the algorithm says six, speed limit 65 miles an hour. So that, this is, it's something though that I always bring up because I want to remind people, that's the race in the military part. And I don't know that we're gonna get that answer from commercial. Bill LaPlante, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment with Defense Group's John Harper at Defense Talks. You can find a link to the video of that conversation and all the Defense Talks discussions in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. The Defense Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. If you really like the Defense Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every week, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop Podcast returns next Wednesday. I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.